3: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is
1: Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Varieties of Atheism in Science by Professors Elaine Howard Eklund and David R. Johnson. So not all atheists are new atheists, but thanks in large part to the prominence and influence of new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and Christopher Hitchens, new atheism has claimed the pulpit of secularity in Western society. New atheists have given voice to marginalized non-religious individuals and underscored the importance of science in society. They've also advanced a derisive view of religion and forcefully argued that science and religion are intrinsically in conflict. Many in the public think that all scientists are atheists, and all atheist scientists are new atheists, militantly against religion and religious people. But what do everyday atheist scientists actually think about religion? Drawing on a survey of almost 1,300 Atheist Scientists in the U.S. and the U.K., and 81 follow-up in-depth interviews, this book explains the pathways that led to atheism among scientists, the diverse views of religion that they hold, their perspectives on the limits of what science can explain, and their views of meaning and morality. The findings reveal a vast gulf between the rhetoric of new atheism in the public sphere and the reality of atheism in science. The story of the varieties of atheism in science is consequential for scientific and religious communities and points to tools for dialogue between these seemingly disparate groups. Elaine Howard Eklund is the Herbert S. Autry Chair in Social Sciences, Professor of Sociology, and Director of the Boniak Institute at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Her research examines social and institutional change, especially when individuals leverage aspects of their religious, racial, and gendered identities to change institutions. Elaine is the author of seven books, over 100 research articles, and numerous op-eds. She's received grants and awards from multiple organizations. David R. Johnson is an Associate Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Educational Policy Studies at Georgia State University. His research agenda examines how universities are shaped by changes in their institutional environments, especially as it relates to capitalism, religion, and politics. He's previously published in numerous academic journals, a book with Johns Hopkins University Press called A Fractured Profession, Commercialism and Conflict in Academic Science, and he's co-authored another book with Elaine Eklund called Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Actually Think from Oxford University Press. In fact, they joined me back in July of 2019 to discuss that book so you can find it in our archives. Elaine and David join me today to talk about their latest book together. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Secularism. Elaine and David, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having us, Carrie.
2: It's great to be back.
1: So let's start with you guys. Tell us a bit about yourselves and how
0: you came to work in your fields. Um, I guess I'll start. I am a sociologist, so... I've always been interested in uh, groups and group behaviors and um, super interested in um, how people understand religion and the impact that religion has on society. But uh, this book in particular is a new area for me. So studying non-religion and atheism, and it's just been a really wonderful and, and wild ride.
2: And, and for my part, uh, I am a also a sociologist and I came to sociology primarily with an interest in how people derive meaning from the work that they do. And so um, I started out my earliest work focusing on scientists and looking at them from the perspective of, of work and organizations and uh, indirectly came to the study of religion through my postdoc at Rice University with Elaine. And uh, my earliest work was looking at the way that that capitalism influences the work of scientists in universities. And so this was kind of an interesting um, progression from my early work in that I was studying the religiosity of scientists and what they think about religion And then ultimately now focusing on this book, um, looking at secularity and atheism.
1: Fantastic. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you next about how this particular book came about.
0: Well, (laughs) um, Dave and I have talked about this a lot. And, um, you know, I think he may have been the first to suggest this. So we were studying what religious, um, what scientists think about religion in eight national contexts. So that's a really big, huge, it's just a huge project, um, where we surveyed, you know, over 40,000 scientists. And I think if you had asked us as scholars who study religion, um, you know, are there many ways of being a religious scientist? We would have said, absolutely. There are many different ways of being a religious person, but I think at least for me, Um, I was really surprised by the data that we were collecting with scientists in that there were a lot of different ways of being an atheist scientist. And that was just completely surprising to me. And as Dave and I worked on this project together, we started to really talk about it and we're like, wow, is there enough information there to be a book? So, you know, what do academics do when they're surprised about something? They produce more books about it. So. Um, that's what we decided to do is to write a book. And just because there was so much data there that we had really unexpectedly found. And I love that, you know, when, when you're in the field, when you're collecting data and something really, blows you away that's surprising, that really challenges your own stereotypes as a researcher. It's really exciting.
1: It is. So I also want to ask you about your methodology. Um, Because as you mentioned, this is a project that emerged secondarily to your initial exploration of the relationship between science and religion, which was covered in your first book, uh, or your first book together, I should say. So could you tell us a bit about your experiences talking to scientists that were particularly relevant to how this book project took shape?
2: Well, I would start by just telling you a little bit about the methodology that is is the basis of this book. It is a a selection of data from this broader eight nation study, excuse me, except we're focusing on scientists specifically in the United States and the United Kingdom. And then specifically looking at survey data we have with about 1,200 scientists who indicated on surveys that they were atheists. And then focusing on in-depth interviews with 81 atheist scientists that um, that uh, that were, were selected from that survey sample. And I don't remember the point at which we really started to, to see in the data that there, there needed to be a, a closer look at the atheists. It may have been Early on in in this broader study, we really noted that a lot of scientists in in the UK and the United States and even in places like India were talking about Richard Dawkins and um, in in ways that maybe didn't align with, with, um, that showed some sort of gap in, in how they viewed themselves and atheists and the type of atheist identity in the public that that Dawkins seems to enact. And I think that was probably our first foray into the data to say, maybe there's something more going on here with atheists than, than meets the eye. And, and one of the challenges is that uh, given that there was such a lack of understanding about the religiosity of scientists to date, when we designed um, the, the 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 original project focusing on religiosity of scientists, there were just tons of measures about different ways of thinking about religion, whether it's a belief or a practice or or an affiliation and lots and lots of questions about religion, but relatively fewer that allowed us to really drill down on atheism and different types of atheist identities. And so in many respects, we were um, aware that we had a, a lot of data to help us paint a really interesting portrait of varieties of atheism in science on the one hand, but on the other, we were cognizant of the fact that we didn't set out to study atheists from the outset. And had we done that, um, we would have perhaps had an even more richly detailed book than, than what we ultimately uh, were able to put together.
0: Dave, I don't know if you re- remember, I think, I'm trying to think when I first Um, thought, oh, we should write a book about this. Um, You know, we wrote that article um, about how atheist scientists approach Richard Dawkins. And I remember the interview with the scientist in the UK um, when I asked him about, you know, what he thought about religion, you know, said that he was an atheist. And then he said, but I'm not an atheist like Richard Dawkins, of course, the well-known scientist who... Uh, is was former chair for the public understanding of science at, at University of Oxford, but who wrote the very famous book, The God Delusion. And so I think it just, we started bantering about that and we're like, I'm not an atheist like Richard Dawkins. What does that mean exactly? And we started to realize that scientists were trying to differentiate themselves from atheists that they thought were virulent, you know, especially negative about their atheism, especially negative about um, well, positive about their own atheism, but negative about religious people um, and their religiosity. And there was this group of scientists who were very, you know positive about religious people, thought religious people could bring good to the world and just were not the scientists were not themselves religious and were atheists. But they weren't necessarily derisive about religious people. So we thought, wow, like, are there different kinds of atheist scientists? You know, sometimes, especially when you're studying the scientific community, these are folks who are super reflective. And it's like your respondents give you the best ideas sometimes. Um, And I just, that was really, I think, maybe the seed of something there that got us started on the book topic.
1: Right. In fact, I think in this book, you even mentioned that that was one of your first interviews, maybe, was with a scientist who mentioned Richard Dawkins' right of and then I thought it was super interesting how you mentioned seeing the God delusion sometimes prominently displayed on certain people's shelves as if it's like this um, talisman or indicator, this is where my allegiances lie or something, which I thought was really interesting. And you actually kind of, um, or you begin your this book with uh, a discussion of the impact of the new atheists, which of course is more than Richard Dawkins, includes uh, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and uh, Christopher Hitchens as well, um, the so-called four horsemen. Um, so yeah, l- let's talk a little bit more about that, um, the impact of the new atheists on not just scientists necessarily, but on the public perception of science more broadly.
2: I would just start by acknowledging that that um many of the the exemplars of of the new atheist movement have done a lot of good for science and 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 um really promoted public interest in science in, in a way and so even though we're engaging with them it's 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 not so much a, a, of a critique as much as uh, a recognition that they're the most vocal um exemplars of, of atheist scientists or atheist academics in, in the public sphere. And then if you look at what they say, given that they're the most vocal, um, they often promote a view of religion as, as problematic or or not rational or even uh, dangerous for, for society. And, and most importantly, at least in terms of where we had been intellectually at the time as promoting this idea that there's an intrinsic conflict between science and, and religion. And, um, Elaine has done in some other work with, with our good friend and colleague Chris Scheidel, um, sort of, uh, survey experiments in which, um, people are asked if they know about Dawkins or if they know about, um, uh, um francis collins thank you elaine sorry and um and how their views of of whether or not they they're aware that a fact that a scientist is is religious or or an atheist has a has an impact on how they view the relationship between science and religion as it does and it does and so it's um i think they're just seen as as the the character the characteristic scientists that there is in society and so when the public in a in a country like the United States, which is a highly religious public, thinks scientists uh, they think atheists, and if they think atheist scientists, they think Richard Dawkins, for example. So even though they may not be indicative of of atheist scientists, they're certainly the most um, present, and and it's for that reason that we sort of start with them as the book just at the beginning of the book to say that this tends to be how the public thinks about atheist scientists, but there's more to it.
0: I want to add one more thing to what David said. I I think the new atheists, if you know, mentioning those four, are actually decreasing in their societal and cultural prominence. But David is actually as I just think really hits the nail on the head that even if these folks are not writing as prolifically as they used to, there is this real belief in the broader public that. You know, scientists are atheists in the way that Richard Dawkins is an atheist. And that's potentially dangerous for, you know, the future of science if, say, you know, religiously inclined people don't want their children to take science courses because they're concerned that the atheist scientists there might, um, you know, (laughs) might be especially negative to their children. So there's real consequences, even if these images seem incredibly stereotypical there's real consequences if the myth isn't pointed out or if it's just allowed to go kind of unchecked
1: yeah that really ties into my next question which was to ask you to elaborate on why you think uh, it's important not only to study atheism among scientists uh, but among those in the u.s and the uk in particular
0: I think we chose those two national contexts because they're really major uh, global superpowers in science, and they're interesting national contexts for religion. Of course, the U.S. is much more religious than the U.K., but in both of those national contexts, there's some evidence that the broader public sees atheist scientists as the norm and the particular kind of atheist scientist, and of course, um, Richard Dawkins um, taught and worked in the UK scientific infrastructure, so that made some sense as well. And there are a lot of atheist scientists in both of those places, and so then that gave us just some really excellent context to to study this particular group.
2: And and then in other regions, uh, it's just a it's it's just a vastly different um, public landscape for science and religion. There's not you can find them for sure in in many of the other regions around the world, including the ones that we study. But in France, a highly secular nation, there's just not a ton of public controversy related to to science and religion. And so, of course, they're aware of of people like Dawkins, um, but much less engaged in it um, than scientists in the US and the UK. And so if the goal was to understand Atheist scientists, we certainly could have looked in other nations and perhaps that would have introduced variations into what we might have found. But given that they have been an understudied group, this is sort of going to um, uh, two important contexts to, to, to really start um, to, to better understand um, who atheist scientists are and what they think.
1: All right, so your next chapter focuses on how scientists become atheists or secular in their lives, and some people assume that exposure to education particularly perhaps education in science, is what prompts people down the path of unbelief. Uh, Sometimes it's also assumed that people already prone to atheism are the ones who become scientists or even who become the best scientists. But your research shows a much more complex scene, doesn't it? So what patterns do you find in terms of the childhoods and educational experiences that are the backgrounds of atheistic scientists?
0: So it is the case that Some scientists do transition away from religion because of science. And I would make the distinction here, Carrie, between um, scientists who are secular or non-religious and scientists who sort of, you know, go that extra mile and say that they're committed atheists. And so I think those those groups of people are different in kind sometimes as well. Um, But there is a sense where some people do transition away from religion because of science, And that's maybe what people would expect. But we also found other things um, that sometimes folks have bad experiences with religion altogether. So in the U.S., for example, it's very uncommon to be a second-generation atheist, to be raised in an atheist home. Um, Such widespread non-religion and atheism in the U.S. is a relatively recent historical phenomenon. And so the scientists, especially the U.S. scientists that we... Interviewed often had bad experiences with religion as a child or bad experiences being part of religious, religion based schools. Um, There were some scientists who were simply raised um, in atheist homes. This is more common in the scientific community than in the broader public in either the US or the UK. And so that should be pointed out as well. So, folks who said that scientists who said that they were. Atheists um, at age 16 and were raised in an atheist home. So there are different reasons. Um, you know, when we ask scientists about their life histories, there are different reasons for being atheists and some different than we might have thought. Might have thought.
2: And just to put a, a sort of broad descriptive um, brush on it, you, you know, in our survey that we asked of, of the scientists, we asked, if their scientific knowledge and training had any impact on how religious they are. And in both the U.S. and the U.K., somewhere between 50 and 60 percent said exposure to scientific knowledge had no impact on how religious they are. Um, And maybe one in three said that it it made them become less religious. My my sense from um, existing data on religious transitions, which may not be exactly the same among scientists, is that um, people transition, or at least in the case of the scientists, they transitioned away for reasons that had little to do with exposure to scientific knowledge, often because they, they would say that they became uh, non-religious during their adolescence, even before they were really introduced to, to science in high school. Um, but that exposure to science affirmed uh, the, 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 the transition. So it wasn't a cause of it, but it sort of affirmed it. I think a, a lot of sociological research says that changing social networks is one of the, the, the main factors that's associated with, with transitions away from religion. And I imagine it's true uh, for scientists as well.
1: Okay. So you categorize non-believing scientists into three basic types the modernist atheists, those who are culturally religious, and those you term spiritually atheist. Uh, So let's start with the first one, which your research finds is the largest group among those you studied. What are the common characteristics amongst this group, and how do they view the relationship between science and religion? So I'm talking about modernist atheists there.
2: Uh, I'm happy to take a first swing at just painting a picture of modernist atheist scientists. So just as we define them in the book, they are are scientists who very clearly indicated in surveys and interviews that they don't believe in God and, and they're confident that God doesn't exist. They, uh, in a bunch of questions, we ask them about practices and their spouses and families. They have no informal or formal engagement with religion or spirit, spirituality, um, And in the United States, they they represent about two-thirds of the scientists in the survey. And in the UK, there are about three-quarters of them. So they are the largest group of scientists that we interviewed. And in addition to that, they are the most likely, uh, when asked about their view of the relationship between science and religion, they are more likely than others to say that they uh, consider the, the they, they think there's a conflict between science and religion and they, they are on the side of religion but in even that case um, they're only they're only about 63 or 62 percent of the sample that embraces this view so a third of modernist atheists think that science and religion are are independent of one another and a very small proportion even think that they can be collaborative. So that's just a, a high level View and then Elaine, maybe you want to offer a little bit more contextual uh, perspective.
0: Yeah, some of the things that we found about this group, Carrie, is that they do, as expected, perhaps think that religion is sometimes a problem for science. Um, that their colleagues who are religious are inconsistent. Um, that you know, no good scientist should be religious. That religion is sometimes harmful to society. But what was surprising to us is that these modernist atheist scientists also sometimes have appreciation for the positive societal role of religion. So they think that religion sometimes compels people to do good in the world, that it's a kind of civic balm. And so these folks, um, you know, are different than I think my stereotyped version of the modernist atheist was. And then lastly the modernist atheist did talk to us. That's what we call this chapter. I'm not like Richard, because as we explained a little bit ago, there was a scientist who said that to us, meaning of course, I'm not like Richard Dawkins. And there was a lot of effort on the part of modernist atheist scientists to try to create boundaries between themselves and the, the so-called new atheists. And we didn't even ask them. So it's kind of, you know, it's important to a group of people when they start telling you something before you even asked. It's not like we said, so are you like Richard Dawkins that they wanted to point out to us that even though they are atheist scientists and hold some of the same, you know, beliefs and predispositions and sensibilities that Richard Dawkins and other new atheist scientists hold, they're not like him in terms of how they approach the public, the way that they um, treat and uh, you know the way that they approach religious people. So that was that was really interesting to us. That kind of boundary work um, that this group was doing with the new atheist scientists.
2: And, and to be sure, this is the group. You know, if you're looking for a scientist who who thinks and acts like Dawkins, they're going to be in this modernist group. But 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 those types of scientists who would would mock. Or or be derisive of religion, I would say, are not indicative of most of the modernists that we spoke with. I would say that a lot of the modernists were simply indifferent to to religion; that it simply wasn't something that that they were concerned about or 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 angry about. Um, and and so, if anything, they their their concern was that by being so derisive in the public sphere, it was actually bad for science. That 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 Vocal new atheists are, are in their their attack on on the beliefs of of the religious public are are only undermining the potential for public confidence in science. Um, so it is indeed a, a really interesting group.
3: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting study. The reaction to Dawkins just in itself, it's an interesting thing to to think about. Um, But next, you look at the culturally religious scientists. So these are the people whom you describe as having various social ties to religious institutions and communities either through marriage and family, church attendance, and even sending their children to to religious schools, despite expressing essentially atheistic views. So this is a bit of a head-scratcher, yet there's a significant number of them, I believe, according to your research. So what's going on with these folks? Were you able to find patterns in why they behave in
0: these seemingly contradictory ways? In some ways, these folks were the most surprising to us as well. You know, I appreciate that you... Picked up things in the book first. I just appreciate that you read the book; that's very cool. Um, but I appreciate that you picked up some of the things that were surprising for us as well, which means that we, you know, were communicating accurately how we felt about the data. But we did not expect these scientists who were, um, you know, prize consistency. I mean, I think scientists are really different as a group of people than many other groups of people that you might study in that. They try really hard to be uh, reasonably consistent. and in the general public just doesn't have as much problem with inconsistency. So uh, and that's and that's kind of interesting about scientists. And so then it was curious to us that atheist scientists sometimes engage with religion, and they did so um really on behalf of important social relationships. So if they had, a spouse who is religious, or um, maybe they, you know, got attached to people in a congregation and wanted to be part of a congregation because they experience a kind of wonderment in the ritual of religion, but yet do not believe in religion and so um, believe in the particular kinds of theological assertions. And so that was that was pretty fascinating to us. And then there's a sense where religion provides cultural goods in society. So it provides things like education. Um, You know, knowing about religion provides access to certain kinds of literature. And so we did find atheist scientists who were quite, um, you know, thought just learning about religion was really important for their children. And so then, you know, we have this great interview with a scientist who's an atheist who's raising his children um, in Catholic schools because he thinks that these are better schools, you know, um, than other kinds of schools. And so he's, he's fine with his kids being exposed to, you know, frequent chapel because it's for the greater good of giving them this excellent cultural educational experience. And then of course, um, spouses who are religious, uh, you know, to honor one's spouse, atheist scientists sometimes do attend church or, um, mosque and that you know shows this kind of relational draw is so important in people's decision making broadly but even for scientists
2: and I hate I hate to even call it a pattern because it, it's it's so localized and, and specific but uh, you know scientists around Oxford and Cambridge um, would often talk about a- attending services and and at, at churches as atheists, and i think for them they see it as an important part of of western culture and um and and find find participating in in uh in church services as like a, a a tie to the community that they're in and just an appreciation for for the history around them and i i would just add yeah when we when we first started looking at at atheists in the survey data um this was one of the, the sort of fun things. like, what, what, what can we learn about, about these groups? And, and I remember interviewing people and, and they would note that they were married to, to a religious spouse. And so this and practices was really interesting to look at. And the way that we classified them in our survey data, we found that in the United States, these culturally religious atheists represent about 25%, basically one in four of all of the atheists and in the UK, they're about one in five, around 20%. So modernists are the biggest, somewhere around two-thirds or so, roughly across the, the two the two countries. And then culturally religious atheist scientists are, are the second largest about one in four or one in five of every scientist that, that we, we surveyed.
1: So that brings us to what I have to admit for me is the most unexpected and perplexing group of all, and that's the spiritual atheist scientists. I mean, I think most people would recognize that sounds like an oxymoron. So um, setting aside for a moment, uh, the fact that they're scientists, Um, just this seemingly contradictory notion of being a spiritual atheist is difficult enough. However, I have to admit that in the last couple of years of doing this podcast, this is an idea I've come across a few times now. And so, yeah, I'm interested to hear on, uh, hear your take on this phenomenon through the lens of these particular scientists. What is the intellectual position and how do these scientists explain it?
0: Scientists reflect on this a lot themselves, because um, you probably, since you're a student of religion and non-religion, Carrie, you're aware that the spiritual but not religious group of people in the United States is um, growing larger um, over time. And so these are folks in the U.S., at least, who Sometimes pick and choose from different types of religious traditions. They have a kind of what we call as scholars like a sociosyncratic religious adaptation. They're going to be a little bit Buddhist, a little bit Christian, a little bit Muslim and pick things from traditions that work for them and create their um, own unique religious tradition or sets of traditions scientists are often cynical of that way of being. They, as I said before, prize a kind of intense consistency and reflection. Um, Not that people in the general public don't reflect, that's not true at all. But scientists uh, prize rationality higher than most everyday people, understandably so, because of their scientific work. And so they are trying to create a sense of spirituality that's consistent with their identity as scientists that's reasonable and these atheist scientists who are spiritual see a sense of awe and way of being that's outside of themselves that they call spiritual and they see that as consistent and also different in kind than the sort of spiritual but not religious sensibility of the general public. And if you're suspicious of this, you have good company because we have had a lot of trouble getting this material published. I mean, I, I um, published a a little piece with, um, the sociologist Elizabeth long more than a decade ago now on, you know, spirituality and the scientific community. And we just started to notice the spiritual atheist group, you know, then and reviewers to our research were really negative about it. They thought, the, re, the sociological reviewers thought scientists who are spiritual atheists are inconsistent. And I'm like, you know, we're not, our role here as scholars is not to judge people. <laughs> you know, we're here to capture what they're thinking about things. And so we did finally get that piece published, but, you know, we met some of these same critiques of the book when we started talking about spiritual atheism um, for this particular book as well. I'm kind of rambling, but I feel very passionate about this particular topic, because I just think you know it's probably most changed the way I view the scientific community to have experienced um, this group of scientists who th- see themselves as both atheists and as intensely spiritual.
2: Yeah, a couple of things I would add to that. and one of them, first, one of the things we do emphasize in the book is that uh, often their sense of spirituality is is through their their scientific work that that is is a a basis for something that they would characterize as spiritual in in some sense. The other thing which we didn't explore in the book that I was just thinking about as Elaine was talking is how there's just really limited rhetoric for what spirituality among scientists in particular entails. And it's largely because there's no group basis for this. I don't know that we met a scientist who, who participates in the, the atheist churches that our, our good friend and sociologist Jackie Frost studies, but it's a lot easier to describe um, and have a rhetoric for something like spirituality if there's a group basis for it. And I think for many scientists, it's something personal that they experience through their work or or through their, their connections to, to, to humanity or Or nature, so it is a really fascinating group. It's the smallest group in our survey. They're about five or six percent of of the sample in the the U.S. and the U.K. And and one of the things that's most notable about them is they're the least likely to to think that there's a conflict between science and religion. And and overwhelmingly, they they think that they refer to, to to different aspects of reality.
1: That is so interesting, especially that you say you got pushback on publishing, which just is shocking to me because you'd think if you'd uncovered something that was so unusual, such an interesting phenomenon, you'd think that would make it seem even more important to explore and publish about. Um, In in other sectors, I've encountered the term post-secular re-enchantment to indicate an interest in uh, for folks who are atheists but are not interested in giving up that sense of enchantment with the world. And that's really what this seems to be to me. But in my uh, attempts to track down um, a lot of literature about this, uh, I haven't found much. And so I wonder if um, it's happening on both sides of, of the book. Like, on the one hand, you don't have many people researching it and writing about it, and maybe there's pushback in the publishing side as well, which might be having a significant contribution to that lacuna. So that's, that is really interesting. Um, well,
2: and maybe maybe in a year or two, you should speak with our, our friend Brandon Vaidyanathan at Catholic University of America, who uh, has a project looking a little bit more closely at this, uh, this idea that you're describing. So, oh, I will have to get his
1: name think. from you later. Okay, yes. Um, but I also wanted to ask you a question because the way you describe or the way you characterize how they describe uh, this, this spiritual feeling, I couldn't help but wonder if, if it's a bit of a scientist version of the God of the gaps, you know, things that they can't quite fit into the box. And so it's just a God
0: of the gaps thing where it's like wonder and awe. I don't think so. Um, we didn't have anyone, of course, use that phrase, which is a bit pejorative, right? True. Um yeah. it's usually out <laughs> of the gaps is usually used by outsiders to describe what religious people are doing when they attribute things that science can't doesn't know yet to religious causes. And so of course scientists wouldn't use that to describe themselves. But I don't think that that's what they're doing. I think they're trying to say that there are aspects of reality that are outside of science. And so they affirm something, some way of knowing that's different than science, yet not inconsistent with science. And that has consequences. So in other research, we show that scientists who see themselves as as spiritual also see themselves as more friendly towards caring for their students well or more likely to spend more time with their students, more likely to volunteer. So they see themselves as having different practices potentially than, you know, atheist scientists, the sort of what they think of as the everyday atheist scientists. So these spiritual atheist scientists are to some extent, and again, we shouldn't overstate our data here, but to some extent, are setting boundaries between themselves and other kinds of scientists. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting.
1: Um, So in terms of these um, spiritual, what are the spiritual practices that these atheist scientists engage in or how do they uh, experience or or practice their spirituality?
0: Well, I do think a, a type of moral engagement is a sort of practice Again, I don't want to say that modernist atheist scientists are not moral. That's not what I'm saying at all. The kind of data that we collect does not give us the ability to judge whether or not people are moral in reality, right? What we can figure out, though, is how people talk about their lives and how they make meaning in their lives in their own terms. And spiritual atheist scientists do see um, themselves as having a kind of, you know, conviction to make the world and their communities better places. And that this has kind of very real everyday implications of how they treat others and causes them to reflect on that. Um, As David said, there is a sense and as our colleague um, Brandon Vajinathan is, has a big study right now on beauty and awe and work. And there is a sense where spirituality is found through scientific work. And so it may be a kind of reorienting to how one does scientific work, that there's something in the doing of scientific work that puts off a kind of awe that cannot be explained by science itself. It's something that maybe comes from science, but is different in kind or can't be fully discovered through just the scientific method. Um, There is a sense, too, among these atheist scientists that they're, trying to make themselves into better people. So they talk to us about, you know, engaging in practices that help them feel happier and more, more peaceful, um, that they regularly meditate, things like that. So, um, yeah.
2: And I I, I would argue that there's a big chunk of, of spiritual scientists who, um, Aren't intentionally engaging in practices that they would characterize as spiritual, but yet they have experiences that they might view in that way, or they have spiritual feelings. But I think many, if 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 you ask them what spiritual practices they 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 are engaged in, they would scoff at the idea. But if you ask them about experiences, they would be that 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 uh, they would characterize as, as spiritual. I think that they would would certainly be able to describe moments and instances like that I don't I'm not I don't want to paint a, a, a picture of the entire group but just a, a sense I have from sitting down with with individuals of this type
0: yeah no that's exactly right that there's not Um, there may not be that kind of intentionality to define what constitutes spirituality that they say is among religious scientists to define what constitutes religion that's that's wise yeah that's right Dave It's almost like a
1: passive spirituality as opposed to an active spirituality. Mm -hmm. Under certain conditions and for certain
0: uh, ones of the scientists, yes.
1: Okay. So your next chapter asks a super interesting set of questions, basically trying to get at understanding the epistemology of scientists. So questions along the lines of how atheist scientists define science, how they distinguish and demarcate science and religion as respective ways of knowing, if they feel the scientific method is sacred, which I thought was a really interesting question, and fascinating questions like that. So there's a lot to unpack
2: here. This is an example of of where I imagine if we had a ton of questions in our survey and interviews, that we would have been able to to go really deep and and interesting on the topic. But I'll I'll start by, by just painting a A general picture of of the themes that we we write about in this chapter, and the first thing I noticed that most of the scientists that we spoke with, um, and these data come exclusively from the the interviews that we did, seem to exercise a a pretty general form of of scientism. This idea that that um, the only legitimate domain of truth is that which stems from natural scientific knowledge, and so from this perspective. Somebody embracing this view would say that religion and philosophy and other domains um, could ultimately be explained by by science. That's um, a sort of general pattern that I think is is how it comes up in the data with many of the scientists. There's there's a second one that we we refer to as epistemic scientism, and basically this is the idea that if science can't grasp something, it's not a part of reality and it's one of my favorite quotes in the book. It's not from a scientist himself, but it's from Carl Sagan, who basically, you know, says I'm a collection of water and organic molecules called Carl Sagan. And <clears throat> this is the idea that, you know, um, we're just these molecular machines and uh, there's nothing that that's that's uh, outside of science. Um, and. Again, I think that if we had a lot of questions about scientism or the limits of science, it would have been um, really fascinating to to focus just on on something like this. And and of course, the scientists, uh, when they do talk about limits, there are basically two types. One is that uh, it's it's a matter of tools, so that we're limited by technology. And there's, there's a lot of modernist scientists who place a lot of stock In this view that ultimately we'll know more and more about the world as as technology gets better and then there's a contingent of 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 scientists who say that humans are are the limits and basically this is the idea that the world's simply too complex for for us to to understand Uh, you know there's a scientist who's talking about ocean currents and that there's just too much noise too much detail to ever have an, an accurate explanation of it and the broad takeaway I have from, from, from when they talk about what are the limits of of science and saying that it's either technological or, or the limits of human cognition is the, the sort of implied refrain is that the method itself is, is infallible. Um, and that, that, that technology and humans are, are the, the limits.
0: But not science itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a sense, I mean, I don't want to use, worship is too strong a word, and I don't want to, I don't think scientists themselves see themselves as worshiping science. I want to be really careful. But the problem, I I really want to highlight what David said, the problem is not science. So science has a kind of infallibility, even though it's highly changeable. So we have a subheading in this chapter called science is changeable. And scientists did say that, that science can change as more evidence comes into play. But science itself is not fallible. And that's, um, that's super fascinating. That's super fascinating. That is an assumption, almost, of the atheist scientists.
2: Right. I, would, I, sh- I should have been more careful with my words, the, the method or the process of science is infallible. But, but knowledge, every scientist would rec- recognize, uh, is, is constantly changing.
0: And then that science is um, defined as different from religion. So even when we were asking just plain questions about science and what science is and how they understand it, that they still want to explain what science is by explaining that it's not religion so that religion is used as a kind of boundary with science. So they're doing boundary making with religion and explaining science.
1: So something that occurred to me, you guys, um, or David in particular, you referred to uh, this split view of the limits to knowledge being either coming from the tools of science or coming from inherent human limitations. And I, I noticed that for me, it just recalled um, the religious notion that um, the reason we can't comprehend God or the perfect plan or whatever is because of this limitation of human comprehension. Um, it, th- yeah. There's something about that that just smacks of religious belief. Um did you did did that come up at all in this notion of like are are the scientists putting these epistemic concepts in terms that echo religious belief at all?
0: I think that's true some of the time. I mean it sounds like it as a sociologist who's interviewed, you know, with my team, you know, literally thousands of religious people, there is a sense of this infallibility of knowledge making of science that is narrated similar to how intensely religious people narrate religion that, you know, it's just that I don't have the right tools to understand God, or it's just that I don't, you know, we're, we're limited. And as humans know more then we'll understand more of God. So there is this, they narrate similarly. I wouldn't want to say more than that. I'm not, you know, it's not my role to say, oh, and they shouldn't, you know, I, I, we're just explaining, how scientists see science and how a particular group of scientists, atheist scientists see science in their own terms. That's what our role is here as scholars commenting on this topic. Dave, do you how do you see it?
2: Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I don't, I don't have a good answer to, to, to this question because I, I, as I, as I sit and listen to this, I think of, I recall sitting down and doing interviews with, 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 with scientists and, um, they certainly have, you know, much more rhetoric around uh, experiences and, and practices in, in science than than their beliefs about it. And um, uh, I, I would say that that my conversations didn't often go into a heavily philosophical lens um, as 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 much as as uh, at least as I can't recall anything of this type.
1: Okay. Well, another important philosophical question in this discussion is that of the meaning of life. So <laughs> hopefully we can reflect, uh, or hopefully well, some of them- that. Yeah, just that, just that, that simple philosophical question about the meaning of life. Hopefully some of them chatted with you about that. Um, So many religious folks assume that scientists and atheistic rationalists must be sad nihilists in the absence of believing themselves to be loved by a supernatural deity. Maybe a little of my own cynicism is coming through in that wording, I don't know. But um, so are scientists nihilists? And does this make them sad?
0: No one, no. I <laughs> to be super blunt. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some scientists are nihilists. I don't think that from all the studies I've done of scientists, which I think I've done something like 10 different studies that have involved scientists to some extent, I just think being part of the scientific community is a kind of unselfing endeavor. You know, it takes a community of people to do good science. You're always being proven wrong. It's not, I mean, there are huge egos in science and we hear most about those and we hear about this very rare but extreme cases where people falsify data and things like that to save their reputations. But I think the act of doing science in general Is um, a community building kind of act. You know that you can never fully do it on your own. And that acts against encouraging nihilists in the community. (laughs) This is Elaine's opinion. So, this is what, this is not something that we get from this particular data, but this is something that I've noticed um, from studying scientists over and over. But in terms of our, yeah, in terms of our particular study, I scientists weren't necessarily unhappy. I mean, we did find a few, but weren't necessarily unhappy that they don't believe in God, for example. They had alternative ways of thinking about meaning-making.
2: Yeah, Correct? I think the closest you get to this view, the closest you get to this view is when you are asking scientists about religious transitions. Um, there were some who, in earlier moments in their life, they 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 may have associated um you know depression with a lack of meaning or purpose in their life or or found it difficult to shift from some idea that there is some broader meaning in the world to sort of uh externally imposed. i don't think that any of the scientists that that we interviewed would say that there's you know who who are, who are atheists anyway um Would say that there's some fundamental meaning to life, and that would make them uh, sad nihilists. They might say it's not a comfortable view that you know we're molecular machines with no fundamental meaning, um, but that doesn't mean that there's not some meaning that's self-created, and and so I think that um, your former guest on this show, Michael Ruse, uh, in some of his work, he's talked about metaphors on the meaning of life and one is is providential provided by religion and another uh is is progressive or progress uh coming from evolution as a metaphor for the meaning of life and in many respects um it's their work science is is the basis this progressive this this idea that through their work through their community they're going to leave make some sort of contribution Uh, to the common good or building on something for the future. Um, I think there's a strong rhetoric of meaning that's tied to their work. And I would also hazard to guess, even though we didn't focus on it in interviews that in their, in their personal lives, their family lives and their relationships, that those are also bases uh, of meaning. Um, So I think they can, they can out of, at one time, say I'm, a molecular machine with no fundamental meaning and there's no fundamental meaning of life on the one hand and at the other hand say through my work through my relationships uh that's where that's where meaning comes from it's just not something that exists uh, apart from everybody it's something that you create
0: and there's um also a sense that in the broader public that atheist scientists have this kind of intense certainty about their atheism. And sometimes they don't. Um, and again, you know, we'll cite our colleague, um, sociologist Jackie Frost, who's um, studied the ways that atheists in the broader public articulate meaning and purpose. And sometimes atheists have this sense of just finding peace in the uncertainty of life, and that that's a kind of meaning making endeavor. And then the other thing that, that I wanted to say is that atheist scientists um, sometimes just don't think questions of meaning are important questions to be asking at all, and they just reject them. And so this is not something they want to engage with. And that is a way of living as well, um, and a way of dealing with with the question of meaning.
1: Yes, and it doesn't necessarily make anybody sad. (laughs) <laughs> so the million dollar question, uh, for most Christian folks, anyways, after the meaning of life question, is how atheists establish their morality. So it seems very reasonable to put this question to atheist scientists. What do they think of this question? Yeah, I
2: don't know so if we're able to characterize how they establish their morality. Uh, you know, off the top of, of of my head, maybe Elaine has has a, a more concrete since then i do what i can say as it relates specifically to the word morality is that we did have some measures in our survey uh tied to these sort of commonly studied moral values that sociologists and social psychologists have looked at and basically find there's no differences between non-religious and religious scientists in terms of their how moral they are or or not and and, there's this this idea in in some subsets of the public that how can you be moral if you if you're not religious and I think there's just tons and tons of research that that proves that you know that's 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 just uh not a very solid idea and 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 our data affirm that as well there's no differences in in the morality at least in the 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 two or three values that we were looking at. Elaine, do you have thoughts on on how they establish their morality
0: times. They are reflecting more on what it means to be moral because they're responding to that sense in the broader public that people can't be moral without religion. So they want to show it's another kind of boundary work that's going on. They want to show, wow, I can, I'm definitely morally reflective, even though I don't have religion. So, um, and, You know, things like disbelieving and being good to people, um, and the pointing out of inconsistency among certain groups of Christians who these atheist scientists think are not prizing being good to people sometimes. And so sometimes there's more need um, among atheists broadly um, and among our atheist scientists in particular to reflect more on what it means to be moral without religion, so as to dispel certain kinds of stereotypes.
1: All right. So your last chapter is subtitled, Why Religious Believers Should Give Atheist Scientists a Chance. And it expresses some key findings from your research that you wish to communicate to the public, especially the religious public, about scientists. So as you say, Science, unfortunately, has a marketing problem, which is a conclusion many have pointed to. But your research has given you some different ideas for effectively tackling that problem. So what are those?
0: Well, one is just pointing out the reality of atheists in science and that they're not all like the new atheists. They're not um, always anti-religious and many... um, We've said this before, but many, in fact, do think that the the way that the new atheists approach the public is is problematic. Again, with David, I want to point out that, you know, I think that um, new atheists have done much for the cause of public science, but in their commentary on religion and religious people, they have unnecessarily sometimes alienated. A whole group of people i.e. religious people who might want to go into science and the things that we've pointed out about atheist scientists from our data show that atheist scientists are not necessarily as negative towards religious people as the new atheists might lead us to believe um, i think that's important to point out those kind of stereotypes and that's one of the things that you know the best public effect of doing research is that to just translate it and to help, you know, to use research to break down stereotypes that groups have about one another. And religious people do have stereotypes about the scientific community. And so I hope our research has broken down some of those.
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, one of the things that um, some of our colleagues at the AAAS have pointed out when they're talking about science communication is that is that when you're talking, at least in the United States, uh, when you're talking to the public, you're effectively talking to the religious public because the United States is, is such a highly religious um, country. And so if you want to promote public understanding of science, if you want to attract um, uh, women and minorities to science, these are groups that tend to be more likely to be uh religious than than white men um there's no then there's no um it doesn't behoove you to to attack or be derisive towards religion in the way that 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 vocal uh new atheists do and and so what do you know what are the big takeaways that that we would hope that you know religious individuals would would learn about about scientists, as Elaine said, that scientists are um, more religious overall from our broader research that we've done. There's more religious scientists than most people typically think. Um, most atheist scientists are, are not hostile to religion. Most scientists don't think that there's a conflict between science and religion. And um, and I think that that if these these there needs to be more effort placed in creating connections between scientific and religious communities um, if if we do want to promote pu- public understanding of science and and have a diverse workforce um, and we talk about different ways that that might might work in the book but those are the the big tic- takeaways for me is is more more connection and better understanding.
1: Do you think that the current divide between the religious folks and their uh, and the science community that you're alluding to, like the reluctance to put kids into science uh, education, perhaps, um, do you think that would ever have a long term negative impact on the United States ability to compete scientifically and technologically globally? Or is that... I, I know that goes beyond the scope of your book, but just curious.
0: <laughs> I just gonna say, I do think we need to marshal all of our energy to make science more accessible to more people in the u s. And so, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is that religious people are often people of color and women. Um, so black and Latino people in the u s are especially likely to be religious. And so, if um, they have stereotypes about who scientists are, or if um, scientists by being against religion, appearing to be against religion, uh, might also be unintentionally um, communicating to uh, black and brown people that you don't belong in science, that you'll be marginalized both perhaps because of your race and also because of your religion. So There are ways in which dispelling these stereotypes about who atheist scientists are could have some secondary consequences. That's not the primary one, but could have some secondary consequences of encouraging a wider variety and diversity of people to go to go into science.
1: Mm, I agree. I think it sounds like important work. So Elaine and David, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're
0: currently working on? Are you doing more in this field? Dave, why don't you go first because you have a new big project.
2: So uh, yeah, sure. The um, uh, after wrapping up this book with Elaine, I embarked on. I've had a longstanding interest in um, in science policy. And it started actually through this work that we were, these, these projects like this take so much time to, to um, collect data and analyze that in the midst of doing that, we started looking what other data is out there on, on science and religion that we can look at. And, and one of the things that was happening in the States at the time was um, efforts to to allow creationism to be taught alongside or in the place of evolution in schools. And Elaine and I and our friend Chris Scheidel published a paper that was looking at uh, this curricular reform effort that was happening in state legislatures. And I really got into to policy taking place in state legislatures at that time. And so since this project, I have Um, completed a a nationwide survey of state legislatures around the United States and done some interviews with them to try and understand how politics and religion are related to the attitudes that they have towards science and um, the relationship between science and religion and then particular science policies related to genetic editing, Climate policies and and COVID nineteen and a bunch of other things like that and um, that's a really exciting project and that's that's been my my main focus in in the last several months.
0: Hey, David's I was just going to say David's doing really great work um, and understanding how these things happen at the level of legislature is just extraordinarily important. It's an understudied institution. Um, yeah, I have a. I have a small project looking at how people use science and religion when dealing with their bodies and bodily issues. So things like the so-called beginning of life technologies, human reproductive genetic testing, um, how how do people think about the relationship of both religion and science to mental illness and mental health? Um, How do we think about the two as related to aging and then to death and dying? So I have that project and then in a wholly different project, but still in my area of sociology of religion, I'm doing a book with um, colleagues, Christopher Scheidel and Denise Daniels, about uh, religious diversity in workplaces and how we think about incorporating and understanding thoughtfully religious diversity, including attention and understanding of the non-religious um, in workplaces, especially as work has changed Um, during and after the pandemic.
1: All right. Fantastic. All of those are great projects that I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about. Keep asking. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So thank you so much again for being on the show today. I I just think your research delves into questions that are so important to the public discourse today. And your book presents them in a persuasive and really engaging way. I want to encourage any listeners today uh, who are interested in this topic to check out a copy of your book because it's a really engaging, fun read that just sweeps you along. So I'm really happy you were able to chat with me about it today. Thank Thank you so much for having us. It was great to be back. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Goodbye.
2: Bye-bye. Bye. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?